Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, AEA Microphones, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 204. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 204 you're listening to. My guest today is UK-based mastering engineer Streaky, who has worked with numerous people, including Ed Sheeran, Adele, Sheryl Crow, Erasure, Republica, Natasha Bedingfield, and many, many more. You might know him from his YouTube channel as well, which he is very prolific, and I will include a link in the show notes to that. So, streaky coming up here on the working class audio podcast all right grab your coffee cups friends Mm. i'm gonna need a refill i'll get one before the interview starts anyhow um i gotta tell you this little anecdote i was talking with my 10 year old the other day and i can't remember if i was on the gear slits classified or reverb.com or ebay but we were looking through listings of consoles and you know not like i was seriously going to buy a console but i was looking at neve consoles and i was looking at the prices and he was sitting next to me and i'm there on my phone and i'm scrolling through and i said oh check this out this neve console it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars. pretty interesting and i you know just kind of a random comment and wanting to share with him and he said something very profound to me. He said, well, if you bought that, does that mean you'll make that much money or more? And I almost dropped the phone. I was like, well, uh, hmm, that's a really good question. I said, maybe over time. And, you know, there's it's not a real straight ahead answer because it depends on so many factors you know i i I was stumbling for an answer but it really got me thinking i was like well you know depends on the market you're in depends on the the part of the industry you're in uh you know i was just thinking do you work on high-end pop records or country records or rock records or hip-hop records uh where you know i don't know it just it sent me into a tailspin of a thought process but his question at its core was really profound to me and I was I was a little shocked by it to be honest I thought wow that's a great question that a 10 year old would ask and a very astute one at that so ah, kids these days hey you know our friends over at Universal Audio that sponsor the show and help make it possible They have a thing going on called the Classic Apollo Rack Promo. It's not a thing, it's a promo. It's a promo called the Classic Apollo Rack Promo. Say that three times fast. Anyhow, uh, if you buy an Apollo 8 quad or Apollo Firewire interface, you get a free UAD2 satellite quad. So if you are in the market for some extra DSP and some extra I.O. from UA... You should check this out. The offer ends uh, December 31st. I will include a link in the show notes as per usual. Hey, also remember, if you are over at uh, gearslets.com, 
stop on by the sub forum called Audio Life. If you like what we talk about here, you'll you'll love that forum. We sponsor it. They sponsor us. We sponsor them. Hey, you might recall that I uh, mentioned in a past show that I was going to be appearing at the Music Expo SF, uh, doing a panel called Survival of the Fittest, How to Really Make a Living in Audio. Well, I did. I appeared. It happened. I moderated a panel that included Carrie Keys, Brian Gibbs, Piper Payne, and Frank Socorro. And um, I had a... uh, a moment before I headed out the door, for some reason, uh, a tweet caught my attention, and that tweet came from WCA listener uh, Matt Carnes from uh, Colorado Recording in Colorado. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Matt, of course, stated the obvious, like, hey, why don't you record it so we all can hear it since we can't be there? So, brilliant idea, Matt. I don't know why I did not think of that. But anyways, I grabbed the Zoom recorder on the way out the door, thanks to Matt, and uh, hooked it up to the front of house console, and I got it. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to put that out, I don't know, next week, maybe the week after, not really sure, but it'll come out, you'll hear it, some good tips in there, very condensed, uh, it was a very short panel, it was only 45 minutes, so we really burned through some topics, so, yeah, I'll get that out to you at some point. Sooner than later, yeah. So, Matt Carnes, thanks for that. You could check Matt's operation out called Colorado Recording at coloradorecording.com. I'll include a link in the show notes. So, once again, thanks, Matt. Without you, that wouldn't have happened. I would have walked out the door and never thought anything about it. So, thanks again. All right, let's get to it. Let's talk to Streaky here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Streaky, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. I've been slowly getting into your videos that you put out on YouTube. Not only do I find them entertaining, I find them educational. I look forward to asking you a bunch of questions. So welcome. Thanks for watching. Thanks for putting yourself through them. (laughs) These days, it seems like I start from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Okay, so I'm a Windsor boy. Uh, not far from where I am now. That's where the castle is. There was quite a big music scene there when I was a kid. Sort of acid house days, boys own. It was kind of a big DJ area. Where did audio show itself as a as a viable option for you as a way to make a living or an interest of yours? I was in a steel band to start with, if we're going right back. Yeah. And then from the steel band, I was a DJ. So I was kind of more of a wedding DJ. Uh, I was about 12 when I started doing that. My dad driving me around the van setting up my own light shows and things like that. Then from there, I went into sort of normal DJing came about then, which was, as I said, early acid house stuff. So we're talking sort of 88, 89. And then I was, I sort of got into that a bit. And then I thought it was all over by about 92, 93, like an idiot. And uh, so gave up DJing because I thought, well, it's all been done now. There's no way it's going any bigger. So, um, and obviously it went mental after that. I was always in bands, singing in bands, being the front man. And so I just carried on doing that through the 90s. And then I got bored of sort of doing that because it was relying on other members in the band. So I started to get an Atari and then I started making music myself, remixing and stuff. So I was doing remixes at the same time. I then got a job at Battery Studios. At the time, I was was working in really crap jobs. And so I was desperate to do anything within a studio. So I wrote off every week to, well, every month to say 30 different studios. 
to, um, you know, just write a letter to ask if I can have a job. Obviously, there was no internet, there was no emails then, so I had to just handwrite letters to Abbey Road and all these places. I've still actually got the Abbey Road letter at home, which is quite fun. And then, as luck would have it, some a job came up at Battery Studios in Wilsdon, and Wilsdon is is not the greatest part of London, but it is really good from a music scene. It's good, but Battery was part of Zomba, and Zomba was Jive Records and Silvertone and all those kind of. So there was a lot of at that point they had a massive thing going on where they were building the company up to to then finally sell it. So. The record labels, Jive had everybody on it, Backstreet Boys, R. Kelly, Tribe Called Quest, KRS-One, loads of loads of um, hip-hop. And I worked at Bachelor Studios across the road, so I got a job as a in the CD mastering room. But I didn't know what that was, obviously, because I just wanted to work in a studio and be a tape-op. But, um, but I didn't care, so I went for the interview. They chatted to me. I didn't really know what they were talking about, but I sort of nodded, and they obviously liked me, so... They gave me a job. I went along, sort of scared boy. And I was copying tapes and editing and things like that. So I then made it my mission to get in with every A&R man across the road. And I was younger then, so I was going out and networking and doing all that kind of thing. So, you know, I was trying to meet as many bands and many artists as I could. And then in the evenings, I'd go upstairs, set up the Atari, set up all the desk again to do the track that I was working on that day and then, you know, rig it all down again. So that was a mission every day to do that. I was getting work from people that were coming into the studios and also from the record label across the road. So it was a fun time at Battery. Were you torn between the world of maybe recording or mixing versus mastering at that time? Or were you trying to do everything or anything? I don't know. I never really fancied going into the studio and being stuck with a band that I didn't like for a long period of time. <laughs> when I was doing the editing and stuff, it, it felt more like a job. Mastering was always 10 till 6. So it felt like I could do that and be part of the music, you know, and go and hang out with the A&R guys and all the people from the record companies during the day. And then at night I could do my thing, whereas all the guys that were the tape ops were running around making tea, winding, you know, cables up. And that didn't really appeal to me. I wasn't that bothered. I could never really record much. You know, there wasn't, I quite liked my ego, quite liked the instant gratification of mastering things and someone going, oh, it sounds great. And it's like, oh, all right, brilliant. You know, and, and a diff someone different every day was quite exciting. So I didn't really, when I was at the studio, I was actually quite pleased that I'd fallen into that rather than being a T-boy and going down the engineering route. Yeah, it's a tough route for sure. Was there anybody that was a mentor to you that you really looked up to that showed you the way? Um, at that point, I was working, there was one guy I was working with called Chris Parmenides, and he's like a, he's a, a Greek guy, but he's in the UK, but he's a total audio anorak, total sort of audio file. And so he was the guy that switched me on to setting up rooms and how things sound and different cables and things like that. So I, I'd been there for a few years before he turned up. And so once he turned up, I sort of smashed my desk up put that in the skip which they didn't like and then I made myself like a little desk in front of me so that I didn't have anything in front of the speakers and rearranged all my room so it was all kind of minimalist and just with cables so it, that's where it kind of went at that point and uh yeah management weren't too happy about that but it was uh it was more kind of exploring sound and how things should sound and coming from more of a hi-fi perspective rather than total mass you know just mastering and how all the other studios were. So that was my kind of in for how I look at things today with kind of a minimal approach. 
that was where that started mm. with Chris Parmenides. He he's still mastering and he still is, you know, audiophile as he always was. I mean, great engineer as well. So, but I didn't really, I never got really into the engineering side with him. That was more, you know, rooms and how things should sound. How old were you at this time? Early to mid twenties. So I'd already done sort of five or six years in jobs that I absolutely hated. When you were getting the studio, then it was like the best thing that ever happened to me when I got that call saying that I've got the job. It was like, oh my God, this is just, I didn't care if they paid me. I was, I was actually getting paid, luckily enough, but you know, who cares when you've done rubbish stuff? It's quite good to get into something that you love, you know, your passion. Well, from the get-go, when you, when you started at Battery, uh, was it difficult to survive in terms of, you know, any kind of salary that they were paying you and cost of living? Uh, I was living at home with my parents, so no, it was fine. I didn't care less. I had a car that, you know, I had an old Beetle that I'd drive in. So yeah, I was earning nothing. I didn't care. It was fine. As long as I was doing what I wanted to do. And I've always been kind of entrepreneurial on the side. So there's always been some kind of scheme up my sleeve where I'd earn a little bit of extra cash. So Well, so after Battery, what came next? Around 2000, I did some quite good stuff around 2000, Groove Armada and things that were quite big albums and quite big bands at the time. Then I got approached by Soundmasters in London, which was Kevin Metcalf. And Kevin Metcalf, if you don't know him, he was in the 80s and 90s, like probably in England, the biggest mastering engineer. He was working at a place called Townhouse. And Townhouse was kind of the only, basically a few guys split off and made Metropolis mastering. And then the other guys who were Gordon and Kevin made Soundmasters. So Soundmasters were looking for like a young guy to come in and help them, you know, to, you know, take some time out of their studio that they weren't using. So I had a chat with them and went and worked there. But the reason I wanted to work there was because I was into dance music. They cut vinyl. I didn't cut vinyl before that time. You know, I really wanted to learn how to cut vinyl because it's a real sort of art and it just looked mental. So it was just great. So I went there and to just learn from Kevin was just like starting again. It was just, right, everything I've ever mastered before, forget it. You know, just watch what Kevin's doing and watch what Gordon's doing and just copy what they're doing and check their settings out. So it was totally like starting afresh and then just learning how to EQ with vinyl in mind rather than EQ with nothing in mind because everything till that point I'd kind of made up. You know, someone's actually telling me what I'm doing for a change rather than me just guessing. New set of mentors, essentially. Oh, definitely. Yeah, big time. Kevin was. But it was, you know, it was quite good, actually, having those those sort of uh, few years, good few years at Battery kind of learning myself. I kind of think that's the same as being a piano player and not learning, you know, you kind of self-taught rather than having a script. You know, I'm not really that kind of engineer where I know technically what's going on, but I'm, I don't follow that for that reason. I don't do certain settings because it's technically right or, you know, I'm more how does it sound kind of engineer. So, and I think that's really helped, especially when it came to cutting vinyl, just having that approach and having, okay, so how's that sounding? Is the top end right? Is the bottom end right? Just from a feel and a sound point of view, rather than thinking technically how it is. Do you still carry on to the, to this day with that, that approach? Yeah, definitely. I think once you've got that approach, there's no going back really. As time's gone on, I've realized how to work a compressor and how to, what settings are and, and the different types of compressors and stuff. But it's never really, I don't ever think, oh, I need, I need this kind of thing or that. It's just switch it in. How does it sound? Okay, good. You know, I like that or I don't like that. So that's kind of, I think it's quite nice to have a feel thing rather than 
you know, having to do things because you think it's right or wrong. At the time that you were working on some of these bigger records, did you know that they were going to be a big deal? No. Okay. okay. Because mastering is always, unless it's an artist that is already established, then you never know because most of the stuff, if they're singles, they're they're coming out in a couple of weeks, especially then they were coming out even further back because they had to get CDs made and stuff. But now obviously it's quicker. Things will come out a week after you've done them or two weeks. But then it was always sort of a month, month previous you were mastering it. So you didn't have a clue whether it was going to be any good. And I'm, I've always been a terrible A&R man. Bands will ask me, what do you think of this song? And it's just like, it's all right. But yeah. mostly the stuff that's been number one has been the stuff where I've thought is rubbish. And then the stuff that I've thought is good doesn't do anything. So I'm definitely, you know, in the right job from not doing A&R. <laughs> what do you think people saw in you to get you on projects? Not necessarily the artists, but, you know, those in the position of determining whether you were going to work on it or they were going to work on it. Um, Kevin had massive artists coming in all the time. So mm. really I was kind of sponging off him. He was like the shark and I was taking the little bits off the side, you know? So, you know, and that, that helped me a lot. And that was another reason for going there. Obviously, you know, you, you are the people you hang around with. So you get with some good people, you're going to get better yourself. You know, you're going to learn from them and you're going to take clients from them in a, essentially, or, you know, when they're not busy, you get your chance to show people what you can do. So, yeah, Kevin would always obviously take all the decent people if he could. Of course, you know, it was his business. He wanted to keep his name up there. It's fair enough. But, you know, there was plenty of, say, younger guys would rather work with me than work with Kevin because they might, you know, we'd have a, we'd have a conversation and they'd understand that I knew where they were coming from or what they were looking for. And, you know, you just kind of bond with some people and not with others. That's interesting. And in, in, in those days, I bet your sessions were more attended more often than they are now. W would you agree? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I'm 95% unattended now where at that point it was complete flip of that because people would have to bring the tapes down or they'd want to come and cut the vinyl or they want to sit in, you know, and it's nobody even cares about doing that anymore. Really. They'd rather get it back and listen to it on their own speakers, which I think works really well. I don't think that's a that's a problem. I actually think that I work better when I am unattended because I haven't got somebody influencing me, telling me what I'm doing. You know, I seem to work harder and work because I, 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 I've got no sort of fallback when they're listening on their own speakers. They're going to hear what I've done, the, you know, compared to what they've got. And I, I'm not there to talk them into it, where when you're in attended sessions, half of the half of the session is your salesman trying to talk them into what you're doing and tell them that what you're doing is correct, where if you haven't got that, then it's kind of black and white, isn't it? Um, yeah. But, you know, and I think the only problem with that from a client perspective and from mine as a salesman is that you don't build up relationships as well as you do when they're attended because you can have lunch with them, you have, you know, whatever, you have a chat and you're talking about day-to-day -day life. So you get to know the people, you get to understand where they're coming from, what they want from their music. It makes it much more interesting. And it's and it's more fun, definitely, if people are there. But from a kind of working technical point, I don't, you know, sometimes it freaks out a producer because I might be going in massively, you know, they've spent ages on a mix. I'll put loads of stuff on just to see what I can get out of it. Because like I say, I'm a feel guy. So I'm just banging it in. Okay, what do we think? And, you know, can I do that? Can I not do that? And you can see their faces are just going white thinking, what are you doing to my track? And, you know, and they're thinking, you don't know what you're doing. You're just throwing loads of stuff on. And it's like, well, I kind of, in the end of it, I'll probably come back to where your mix was 
but it's, I'm probably going to go for 20 minutes in one direction and then realize how good your mix is. Start stripping everything off and then we'll be fine again and you'll be happy, but you will have, you know, I'll put you through <laughs> the mill while you've been there. So it's better if I'm doing that on my own rather than, you know, somebody freaking out. It's like putting on a show when somebody's in the room. Yeah, exactly. And it it's weird too, because it's my experience with mastering engineers I've used in the past for projects. It's like, okay, the big day comes, we're going to the doctor, so to speak, you know, to find out, you know, where we're at with this, this mix. And then you sit there and you have like that afternoon to go through it and get it done. And nowadays it seems that with unattended sessions, it gives the um, mastering engineer more of an opportunity to work on it take a break from it and then listen to it with fresh ears before they send it off to you. And that pressure just doesn't exist for the mastering engineer like it used to, I, I, I would imagine. Yeah. And that pressure, I don't think is, is good pressure really sometimes because it's nice to sort of relax and do your thing. And I don't know, I just find I get a better sound when I'm on my own and I can really dial in and focus and not have have to do that conversation, that kind of showpiece and tell them stories and make sure they're happy and all that kind of thing. All that stuff is is great, but it's better sort of done and then you kind of zone in for 20 minutes because otherwise you're just switching in and out all the time. It's like, it'd be similar to receiving an email every every five minutes after you know, you've done it. Suddenly it takes you off and it takes you a bit of time to get your head back in. Yeah. So just having that time of just getting in and really listening to what you're doing and just working out whether it's a good mix or not. I mean, a lot of the time you put loads of stuff on and then realize the mix is so good that you're actually, what are you doing? Just zero it all and start again because you're, the mix is great. You don't need to do anything. And that's one of the frustrating things of working. Some of the mastering guys I've worked with and I've obviously I've checked their settings out and I, you know, that's all you do, isn't it? When they go home, you go straight in their room and look at what they've been doing all day. And you see they've done like, you know, plus one at 20K and you just think, oh my God, how can you get away with doing that on like most tracks? But obviously they're working on really high end mixes that are great. So they don't actually, they're trying to keep away from it. They're just trying to turn it up and, and that's it. What a joy. Job security. They got to do something, right? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. But but really, mastering's about that. Mastering isn't about doing something. It's about not doing something. So, if you can, if you are doing something, you're you know, there's there's probably something wrong with the mix. And really, you should be a QC guy rather than a master. You know, it's not really a creative process from that point of view. It's kind of last place to go before you, just to make sure your mix is right. And I think that's been lost a lot over the past sort of 10 years because people have had mastering equipment at home and plugins and stuff they see it as part of the mix and part of the creative process where it never was that it was always just a, a sort of checking point before it went to get it onto a format to send it away you know you'd either be getting it onto a cd so you have to work out what you're doing for that or getting it onto vinyl where you're going to use filters to get it onto the vinyl in the same way you might you'd use filters now to get it loud you know so it's kind of changed a lot where people expect you to do more than what you actually should be doing. That's that's true because it essentially started out as a transfer process, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you were trying to get it from tape onto the vinyl and so you had to make sure there was no excessive highs or any out-of-phase bass or, and then you're trying to get the level right and obviously you're trying to get it as loud onto the vinyl because, again, loudness wars, everybody's always wanted it loud. So who could cut it the loudest but keep it as flat as possible because the mix was already sounding great on the 
you know, on the half inch or quarter inch or whatever you've got. So it was just a question of having some filters in between, wasn't it? And then it goes on to the vinyl, but that kind of has developed. I don't see that as a bad thing. It's great, you know, that it's developed because it's more fun. But really, that kind of process, people have kind of forgotten. Hey, our friends over at Audio-Technica have sent me a three-pack of drum microphones to check out. I haven't tried them out yet in full disclosure, but I'm going to take them into a session and uh, do some drum recording and let you know how they perform. But let me tell you about it. It's the uh, ATM-230PK. It's a three-pack of drum microphones with a hypercardioid polar pattern, all steel construction. Uh, they come with a built-in drum mount, uh, the AT8665, and a protective pouch. Uh, the whole pack retails for $350, and apparently they contain a proprietary capsule designed to take a high sound pressure level. I'm going to try these out, and I'll report back. Like I said, the, the design is very compact, but it's very rugged. Looks like they could take a beating from some drummers who decide that they're going to aim their sticks in the direction of the microphones. We all know how that goes. Anyhow, I will uh, put a link in the show notes. I will also check them out myself and report back, as I said, and let you know how they work. Yeah, the ATM-230PK drum microphone three-pack from Audio-Technica. All right, let's get back to it. Nowadays, would you say that are the mixes getting worse and their ex expectations are for you to do more. Is that accurate? Yeah, people will rely on a mastering engineer more to sort of fix stuff. But I don't know whether the mixes are getting worse. I just think that depends on the what level of clients you're working with. And also, you know, there's more people making music now. So I guess in the sort of 60s and 70s, I wasn't around, but in the 80s and stuff, the mixes were probably better because you had to pay 1800 quid or whatever it was a day to get in the studio to mix it. So you wouldn't risk it with like the boy around the corner. You would make sure that you had the, a top guy on it. So he knew what he was doing before that. He had a balance engineer on it and all the mics were made with a mic guy and there was another guy in a white outfit, you know, so it was like a completely different world wasn't it it wasn't just kind of slapping it together in your bedroom and sending it off to mastering it was a, a completely different process what was the next stop in your journey with kevin i then built a thing called emasters which was at the time it was about 2003 so i'd been working with kevin for a couple of years and the internet was coming back after its big kind of collapse and so we built it's kind of online mastering, if you like, which was the first kind of one, which was at the time everyone was freaking out, thinking you can't send your music off to mastering. But obviously that's now become a norm as the internet, you know, as broadband or whatever came along and it all came bigger. But so that was kind of like quite an exciting thing to do with Kevin and to kind of build this whole system online. So I got quite into tech at that point and quite into, you know, what was going on with technology coming through. So I did that for a few years with Kevin and we built that business up. That was quite good. And then other people obviously then started doing the same thing. After I worked at Soundmasters, I then um, thought to myself, it'd be, Kevin was always talking about uh, people are starting to move to their houses or build things in their gardens and take mastering to those kind of places. So we'd always talked about that. So I sort of did that. I went and set up a mass, you know, I built this thing in my house, which was ridiculously big and over the top for soundproofing and stuff. And I, um, you'll see it if you look at my early videos, 
um, from sort of 2009, 2010. I'm in my home studio then. I just had children, so it was perfect. So I had had the kids. I could sort of master drum and bass at two o'clock in the morning, full blast, um, and no one could hear me. And, you know, it was it was great at that point. Until the point where I, the sort of kids started going to school and then I started getting a bit bored of working on my own and the kind of not having a place to work and, you know, home work-life split was just becoming a little bit kind of tedious and boring and it wasn't becoming what I got into the music industry for. I like being around people. I'm, you know, um, I just like chatting to people and, and people that are into what I'm into. So when you're sitting there on your own all day and then suddenly you get to speak to somebody, it's like, blah, blah. <laughs> so, so I kind of wanted to work somewhere. So I then spoke to uh, Metropolis, you know, the main place really you want to work with for mastering in this country. They've got, you know, most of the, most of the top mastering guys so I spoke to them and they said that I could use one of their rooms sort of three days a week so I, th- I jumped at that and thought that'd be fun you know for three days a week I'll have two days where because it's always on and off with mastering a lot of the times you're sharing a room so I was sharing a room with someone there and that was fun so going in a big massive studio hanging out with people but realized it was totally different to my battery days where you know I was younger and it was much more fun so it was a totally different kind of feeling going back to a studio as as an older guy but mixing with um, Stuart Hawks and John Davis and Ian Cooper and all these kind of mastering guys that you know always mastering the top stuff that's great you know to go and do that again and set the studio up there have all my equipment there so that was fun so I did that for probably about five years and then recently so then yeah, really I was working out that most of my stuff was unattended there still and from a financial point of view I was actually making more money before I was working there because clients want things the next day or on the same day you know it's it's always last minute it always has been with mastering last minute but now it's ridiculous that people expect things you know turn around can you do this by the end of the day so when I was there and I was working day on day off, it wasn't working for my customers because they were then saying, well, you know, I say, can you do a tweak? Yeah, okay, but I can do it next Tuesday, you know, so it was, and it's Friday. So oh, then yeah. just doesn't work. So they just, after a while, sort of, you know, you just lose those customers really and those clients. So I thought it's probably best if I, you know, set my own place up. So that's where I am now. So I've found a, a, a place at, Pinewood Studios which is 20 minutes from where I live in Windsor and basically it's a totally different vibe to the music industry it's the film industry there's so much money coming into the film industry at the moment not that I do anything to do to do with films but you know Netflix um, YouTube all these different places are all doing their own content so the studios are so busy with that they can't build enough rooms and studios at Pinewood so as a place to work, it's very vibey. There's loads going on. There's people flying around on golf carts. There's, um, you know, Jedis and stuff walking around because they film Star Wars here. There's James Bond about to start. So it's kind of totally different to what I'm used to by sitting on my own in a dark room all the time. I've got an assistant here all the time. So that's cool. I've got someone to do my stuff, which is obviously how you've seen my videos of kind of, I've up my game there. Um, oh, yeah. So, so yeah, it's kind of working really well. I'm, you know, I'm loving it. It's great because I'm, it's a vibey place to be. And so I'm just sort of taking on a few more rooms here and, and, and growing it out. So let's talk about the video part of this. You've got, you know, a chunk of subscribers on YouTube and, uh, I'm curious, why do you do videos? Tell me about that. What's, what drives that? 
I think first of all, it was I started doing them in my home studio, and I think a lot of it was the fact that I didn't have any outlet to talk to people and say stuff. Or and so I think initially it was that it was just kind of something else to do. And it's kind of for me now, I just feel that I've got all this knowledge that I've built up over the last twenty odd years. And the more I've done it, the more I've got into doing it. And then sharing that knowledge is really key because there's no studios now as there used to be. All this stuff that I've learned from, say, Kevin and Gordon and Chris and all these people I've had, there's no one, if you start now and you start mastering, you're kind of starting on your own maybe and then hoping to build a client base. So there's no one teaching anybody all these sort of old things that used to work years ago that still work now. And there's none of those stories and there's, right, how do you do this? You know, like we're saying about knowing about mastering is not to do anything. And mastering is about just small tweaks, not big tweaks. And all these kind of things that I talk about on my channel, they're things that you wouldn't know unless you had worked with these guys, I personally think. And so if I've got all this knowledge, why not give it out? It doesn't make any difference to to me really as a, it's not, you know, I'm not going to lose work because, you know, there's people who have said, oh, what do you want to tell people for? Because, they, you know, they'll go and do it. But it's, well, so what? You know, they haven't got my ears. Anyone can buy the equipment. Anyone can have a set of speakers and a studio, but you haven't had the same background knowledge as me and the same experience and the same, you know, everyone hears things in a different way because they're, their palette is tweaked, isn't it, as they go through the years. So it's kind of helping people to to understand mastering more and also not just mastering, but equipment, how to listen to things. You know, that's the key really is how are you listening? What kind of environment are you in? And if there's no one talking about that in the way that there's loads of people that talk about it, but I think that haven't got the same experience as me on that. So why not sort of give them a bit more real life? You know, I'm a working engineer every day doing, you know, working at a decent level and there's not many guys that that will come out and talk about that they you know don't know why but they won't it's really uh, a great channel uh i love you know the topics the, the not only the topics you cover i like you know the reviews in fact maybe i Thanks. think one of the reasons i initially discovered you because i was looking up um i was watching reviews of Amphion speakers which i use yeah uh, and i and you had had a, a review on and i was like street who is this guy and <laughs> well i was at Metro i was at metropolis on that i feel bad for Amphion. i need to do another one on their on their speakers because the room i was at, at metropolis i didn't actually you know sorry metropolis but didn't actually like the room it was a box room and i just couldn't really get anything sounding good in there if i'm totally honest it was like uh i didn't the pmcs weren't set up correctly the room just sounded weird it used to be a copying room that wasn't built as a mastering room it was a copying room and then they built it into mastering room as time went on so i couldn't ever feel right in there and i set the amphions up and i couldn't move the pmcs to set them up properly so i think my my review on that wasn't perfect if i'm honest but um i'm pleased you found me through it i started to watch your video truth about crack plugins and that's actually right, yeah. a, a topic i've never even uh talked about here on working class audio i want to get your perspective because number one i didn't finish the video because we started the interview so what are your thoughts on on that it's part of the whole problem with the music industry in general where people think that by getting things for free that it's a good thing where really what all that's doing to the ecosystem of music is not if you just take 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 in life generally you're never gonna you're never gonna be given anything you never you know you're you need to give something back before you can take basically or you need to you know it's a it's a it's a free flowing i don't know if i'm explaining this right but it's like in and out mm -hmm. and 
And I think that's the same with like crack plugins. You can uh, get a crack plugin, but you're not going to, you're going to have all the waves bundle. You're going to have all of the fab filter bundle, but you're never probably going to use them because it's like outboard equipment. If you save up and buy one piece of outboard equipment, you're going to know it like the back of your hand. You're going to know exactly how to work it. You're going to take your time. You might have 50 compressors on if you've got loads of crack plugins, but you probably won't use any of them. So what's the point in having them? And you're actually not doing any favors to yourself or the music industry because you're going to, you're taking out and taking out and you're not, it's that kind of mindset thing. If you're always taking, then it's just not good for you mentally. And uh, I just think that the music industry then gets smaller. You're not helping, if you're paying for stuff, you're helping the, the people that are making that, those software to make more software. It's the same as taking music for free. You're, you know, you're not paying for that. So you expect to be paid for your stuff, even though all you're doing is like taking and taking and taking, mm -hmm. but you're not, you're not going to get paid either because people will steal your stuff. So, and you're more likely to attract that kind of stealing if you do it yourself. So I would say 99, I was at an AES show and I ran into an old high school friend, Colin McDowell of McDSP plugins. And, uh, I was like, Colin, what are you, what are you doing here? And he was like, oh, my wife and I started this company, McDSP, to create these plugins. And it was right then that it really gave me a personal connection to, hey, if you steal these plugins, you're affecting the yeah. livelihood of these people. And a lot of younger people who do the whole crack plugin thing think, oh, those big corporations can... They can survive. Yeah, but that's but that's the same as the attitude when people say, "Oh, the big record companies." But the you know the record companies are taking on twenty artists. One of them will succeed, and so they're putting they're rolling the dice on the other nineteen, and they're not getting anywhere. And they've thrown a load of money in. It's kind of like the startup culture in tech, where the VCs, yeah, they make loads of money when they get a Facebook. But what about all the ones that aren't the Facebook? They've had to take a risk on and try. And if you haven't got those companies kind of feeding the system, uh -huh. then where do we end up? You know, and so I, I think that, yeah, like you say, you're taking out of other people's pockets who are making these little plugins in their little home places. It's like, st it's just basically stealing. It's like stealing, a going into somebody's, uh, you know, Masalek studios that are making Masalek compressors and stealing one. Right. You know, why you wouldn't do that. So why do that with, with plugins? Yeah. And, and I don't think you're learning anything from doing that, really. I get, I get, I get it if people say I've got no money, and so you know I have they're so expensive and things. But that's not the case now because you could get Slate plugins that are brilliant for fifteen dollars a month or something, and everyone can afford fifteen dollars a month. So that's just complete rubbish. Yeah, you might not be able to afford a, a I don't know, five hundred pound plugin, but don't use it then. There's loads of other similar stuff to that five hundred quid plugin that's either free or or super cheap. I'm a big advocate of supporting companies that whose products I really like and advocating, you know, and I just actually on my last episode, I talked about how uh, I managed to get do a trade where I wound up with a, a Duro meter and I ended up calling Duro to buy some spare parts to kind of reconfigure the setup for it and was really just enthralled by how small they were you know like somebody right, yeah. somebody answered the phone uh they took you know they took her credit card right there and got the stuff out immediately and followed up with emails and it was like such a like a small business kind of experience that every time i have that experience like like i i've had with grace before uh i just i fall in love with that concept yeah i think most of the thing is a lot of people don't realize that most of the pro audio world is a cottage industry 
it's a guy in his back shed making some compressors or you know it's not massive companies yeah there's obviously sennheiser and people like that but you know when we're talking niche pro audio and uh and certain plugins then yeah it's kind of yeah small business isn't it it, it is yeah uh Anyways, we could go on for days about about that, but I think we're on the same page as, as far as you know supporting some of these companies. They're not the behemoths that many people make them out to be. I think it's just a mindset. I think the people that go into that kind of thing aren't going to get anywhere anyway because they've got that mindset in the first place. Yeah. I think it's the, it's not a professional mindset. You're you're just not going to go anywhere. You, you know, you're that kind of person who's just most of the time collecting plugins for the sake of it. And you're not actually getting on and doing the work and learning and, you know, and supporting other people within the industry. Tell me a bit about, since we're kind of on uh, this topic, I think this is related. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your own survival and your own business strategies as a mastering engineer. What, what can you tell me about that? Uh, relationships. It's all about relationships. A lot of my work still comes from people that I met from those battery days early on. You know, it's just people using you, making sure you treat people well, uh, networking, always, you know, chatting to people, just being, you know, being interested in what they're doing, having a passion of, about what you do comes across. So um, I think then, you know, that they realize that you're doing it for the right reasons. And if they're similar to you, then that's attractive. So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of just, I think it's just networking and, and just keeping up with the right stuff and also doing a good job for somebody ultimately. You know, I think it's um, the market decides if you're any good or not. And um, if you're not, it's not going to be long before they suss you out. So it's kind of, you know... The cream rises to the top, as they say, I guess. Yeah. You've also talked about in, in some of your videos about um, not trying to do everything and really specializing. Yeah, I think that's really important because I don't think that there's a thing that I always think where if you've got five things, then you're only going to do 20% on each of those, where mm -hmm. if you've got one, you're going to be 100%. So for me, it's learn one thing, learn it well, do your 10,000 hours, 10 years, whatever it takes to do it. And then you're going to be through that 10 years is when you're going to make your contacts is when people are going to know you for what you do. They're going to understand what you're doing. If you're chopping and changing, if you're jack of all, all the time, then nobody's going to know you for one thing. And you just, how are you ever going to be able to charge a, a decent amount of money for what you do? Because you're always kind of a generalist rather than, you know, having a niche. And yeah, I charge this because I'm, I'm the best or I'm good at this. So you know, that's how I see that. I think that, and also mastering, I think they're all just different mindsets. Recording is a different mindset to mixing. Mixing is a different mindset to mastering. So being able to comb combine all those in one, yeah, I know there's people that do it, but I'm not saying that it's bad, but me personally, I can't mix anything, but I can master stuff. It's totally different. I'm not, I'm not listening in the same way as a mix engineer is listening. They're listening to the individual tracks. I'm listening to the veneer. I'm listening to the whole thing. You know, I'm listening to the balance of the, the treble and the bass rather than the balance of the, you know, the snare and the and the kick, kick drum. So it's kind of to be able to do all of them at the, on the same day is is one hell of a skill. I mean, you can <laughs> you can master stuff, but I think you'd have to, I would always suggest to people, wait a day or two so that you've got your head out of the mix and then you can just go, okay, how's this sounding mastering? I mean, a lot of people will mix and master at the same time 
you know, and they'll be mixing into limiters and stuff. And that happens a lot now. I like it when they do that and they send me their version of what they've mastered because it gives me a little challenge to beat them and maybe make it sound more dynamic. And, <laughs> you know, I love that because every record company I work with, they all send me a, a mastered file as well of what the mix engineers mastered because obviously the mix engineers have all got to send it off to an A&R guy at top level because otherwise the A&R man will pick the mix that's the loudest always. So they always have got, they've always done their own home master and then I get to then try and beat that. And sometimes it's annoying when you can't. Do you ever feel that your desires for how things should sound are at odds with what the artist is wanting and specifically in the world of loudness? Um, I always ask people, because I'm mostly unattended, I always ask people to send me a reference track. So that I, the one variable that I need, I, I'm fine with dynamics and EQ and all that sort of stuff, of course, but it's managing their expectations when it comes to level. So I'll always say, send me some reference material just so I understand where where you're coming from. Because if I send you something back, some people say, yeah, I, I'm not into this loudness thing and I like things that are, you know, really dynamic and then you send them back something that's dynamic and they want it loud so it, you know they people don't really know what they want so it's easier for me just to say okay send me the track then i can listen through check the levels go okay right you're at minus four rms you know like stupidly loud so then you're you're like okay fine and then you might have to educate and say that i think it's we can still get it sounding loud but we don't have to go like crushed to death so it's kind of sometimes Sometimes it's easier just to get on with it and do it rather than try and educate people because they don't really want to be educated. They just want it as loud as the tracks they're going up against. So if you've been listening to the past several shows, you know that I've mentioned that AEA Ribbon Mics is going to send over the new KU5A Super Cardioid Ribbon Mic for me to try out so we could hear it on my voice. Well, you're hearing it right now. This is it. That's right. Let me tell you about the stats here as you listen to it and draw your own conclusions. Me personally, I love it. I'm really enjoying it. It's a super cardioid polar pattern. Uh, it's got active electronics in it. So the concept is, is that you can use it with any preamp because passive ribbon mics have low output and require high gain preamps. So that may not always be available. So the idea here is with the active electronics, you can use it with any preamp. And in this case, the chain that I'm using it with is into my Apollo 8P from Universal Audio. Got 50 dB of gain. I'm using the Neve preamp, the basic 1290 preamp from Universal Audio. And of course the fan power is on and you're listening to it with uh, very little processing on it except for the limiting on the stereo bus of the podcast, yeah. To me, it sounds really super smooth on my voice. I'm really enjoying it. I'm kind of right up on it, too. So it's uh, been designed so that you can use it on stage, li yeah, live, or even outdoors without fear of damaging the internal components um, or the casing. And uh, it's got a switchable high-pass filter on the back, little button you push in. It can take a maximum of 140 dB SPL. Yeah, so I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, here it is, KU5A from AEA Ribbon Mics. Loving this, yeah. All right, let's get back to it. Earlier you mentioned uh, 
minimalists, uh, being a minimalist and how you set up. Is that is that a current aesthetic or current method of yours now? Yeah, massively. I'm really into I'm really into cables and shortness of cables and the sound of those and make keeping the mains clean and earthing and not having equipment in the chain that I'm not using and having passive systems and not having stuff that doesn't need to be there and making sure that yeah everything is as minimal and as simple as possible because that means less noise less crap going on to the mix than what I'm doing so I just want to hear it okay that's how it sounds to them so okay then this is me adding if I'm going to add something I want to be the person to have added it not the the bad cables that I've got or the things I want to know those cables sound a certain way and they I know that they're you know good on 90% of stuff you know they're gonna they're, they're of a quality and same with any equipment it's got a, you know I don't want hums and stuff that I don't actually want in there just for the sake of having the bit of equipment that pertains more to how how the stuff is connected does that also pertain to uh, the setup of your room yeah everything's symmetrical everything uh, there's, if there's there's nothing in here that doesn't need to be in here yeah I just try and keep really tidy clean place just so that my brain's clean and not messy and everything is kind of i'm quite organized from that point of view so all the files have got to be really well organized and everything kind of set up how i want it so that because you've got to work really fast when you're mastering because you're doing so many tracks a day you don't want to be wasting your time setting pro tools up as we found out earlier on from the setup but you don't right. want to be wasting your time with stuff you want stuff to come on straight away and when you doesn't it's really frustrating so you know you need to be able okay next track right concentrate on how you're getting that sounding next track you know so it's like you know you want to make sure it's all solid and permanent you're not pulling things in and out every five minutes however i do because obviously i'm reviewing stuff so that kind of gets in the way now <laughs> i feel that in our industry specifically in mastering i'm noticing this there's there's definitely trends in certain pieces of gear and certain setups and i'll you know i'll just throw some things out there you know and w with no disrespect to any of these companies but it seems like there's a big trend towards a lot of people using pmc monitors or sterling desks or there seems to be like common things that a lot of mastering engineers have and if you don't have those some people frown on that or uh, you're the you know, other mastering engineers kind of look down their, their nose at you because you know oh you're using that converter oh i tried that that's not so good i'm curious if you have an opinion about peer pressure on that level um personally i couldn't care less what people think about what i'm doing because it's just the sound you're getting at the end of the day i don't think anyone should really care i i hate studios that have all got the same sterling desk um that's why i haven't got it because it's just freaks me out um that everyone's just copying each other that's mental you know your your setup and the way that it all works together should be how you think it sounds best and how how you're creating that sound and you're, that's kind of part of i was saying earlier about developing the palette your your sound palette if you like in your ears and how how does that sound to you and just by getting gear because everyone else has got it that's not you're not really making that decision yourself you're just going with what the crowd are doing and that's not very individual is it really you should be sort of listening to things and thinking yeah i love that you know i'll put that in the chain and not worrying okay well has pete got that or not you know it's like who cares what pete's got i say that but obviously i still look at every single mastering studio to see what equipment they've got but that but that's just 
purely from a have I missed something that I haven't listened to? It is a very fascinating world. And it, let's say you're um, uh, one who likes to master in the box. It, it seems like in the world of mixing, mixing in the box went through a stigma for a while. And now it's kind of a widely accepted thing, especially because a lot of you know key people started doing it. Uh, Andrew Sheps and Chad Blake uh, being two people I can think of that do it, that kind of cleared the way you know, for in some ways, people found it acceptable. In the world of mastering, I wonder if it's going through the same period where some people are not okay with people master, mastering in the box, and some people do a hybrid setup. Some people, you know, continue to do an all uh, analog chain, with the exception of the DAWs at either end to capture and and, and play back. Uh, where do you fall on that whole business? I kind of do a bit of everything. It really depends. I um, I was really against plugins about probably maybe even five years ago. No, when I before I started at Metropolis to say, I don't know, 2013, I was totally against plugins. I'd always been analog um, with digital gear like the Vice stuff and with sort of outboard, you know, hardware digital stuff. I've always had that. Mm. But and I've always had to use limiters in the box because you can't get things loud without doing that. But so I was totally against it, but I think things have really moved on since then. A lot of stuff has, a lot of plugins have come out that are really good sounding and they, you know, there are, and there's certain reasons why you need to use plugins more than you can use um, outboard equipment. You know, there's loads of music that have, it might have harmonics and stuff where the, you're you're going to get distortion and you're going to get different things happening if you're putting it through tubes. Sometimes the tubes and stuff isn't fast enough. It gives you a vibe, but it's not fast enough. So you need to kind of do something in the box to do that. Um, yeah, what turned me on to being able to master in the box or master digitally, should I say, was working sort of alongside Tim Young at Metropolis because he is a guy who, if it comes in digitally, he will just keep it in the digital domain he's got a lot of hard you know digital hardware like um, tc6000 or vice things or you know different different outboard but he'll also use some plugins and that kind of gave me a a kind of you know he's really into sort of dither setting he's so full-on it's mental when it comes to you know he really knows what he's talking about and he really is you know you know he's he's got great ears so he, you can trust what he says and so just you know, again, checking his settings out and checking out what he was doing just made me think, well, stop being such a sort of, you know, old git living in the past. You've got to realize that it's okay. If it's all right for Tim, who's actually probably 20 years older than me, it's probably all right for you. So then I started being a bit more open to listening to things and checking stuff out. And then that was kind of part of the the journey that you've seen on my on my channel where I've kind of got into loads of different things, you know, just again listening to to different plugins or different bits of equipment and seeing how they sound i still you, you know i'm hybrid where i am i use you know there's certain things that i just use that i know that i like that i can work quickly on so that's they're really, you know it's so easy for me to reset things up if i need to recall stuff i think that's one of the main problems that mix engineers had which is why they converted was because it would just take you so long to reset up just to turn the you know to turn the kick down or something so that you know that's there's no brainer for a mix engineer to be in the box but with mastering i think you can still be hybrid and you if you've got nice bits of analog gear that you think will work and sound good on stuff then why not why not use it? It's not difficult to use. You've only got, say, four or five bits of gear to use. So, 
Um, yeah, a little combination of the two works well. But like I say, it depends what you're working on because sometimes, you know, if you're di- sometimes dance music's just better in the box, you know, because some of the tubes and things are just not fast enough, and or they just cause distortion that you don't you don't want to have on because you're trying to get things loud and clear, and and you can do that sometimes with digital gear better. And so your your decision to go out of the box what will determine that so i'm a hybrid i've always got a sort of setup that i start with i'll you know i'll start pushing the track through that and then as i'm starting to listen and getting used to the mix and the sounds and what's going on or certain sections then that will start saying to me okay well i feel myself starting to reach for plugins and if i know that then i think okay well am i adding anything by having that eq there or is it is it taking away is it will i will this be better sort of in the box but you know i'm not if I'm totally honest, I'm not 100% in the box all the time. There's occasional tracks that I'll do that are sort of 100% in the box, but a lot of the time it's a hybrid system, definitely, because you know I'll know, okay, well, this doesn't work for that sort of music, and this does, and these are the settings I like for that kind of sound, and so it's kind of it's a speed thing more than anything. And when you can have that hybrid setup, that probably minimizes the amount of analog gear that you're spending money on, and minimizes your setup to some degree, I, I would assume. So your setup now as compared to say 10 years ago is probably vastly different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've basically, I've since uh, there's a video of on online of my room at Metropolis when I first got there, which was the point of where I was, wasn't using any digital stuff. And it's mental, the amount of gear I've got. It's like, you know, it's like a shop. And now I've just, all I've done, I've stripped back everything that I, that I wasn't using all the time. So if it wasn't something that I, a go-to bit of equipment, I've got rid of it. So again, that's the minimalist thing where you're just kind of stripping back and going, okay, well, if you only use it on two tracks a year, there's no point in having it. You know, you might as well do something else and find another way around. So that's kind of the approach that I've taken. And I think it's great because it means that I can, you know, I'm always using the equipment that I've got or, you know, certainly using it 50% of the time. In terms of uh, your gear lust and your desire to buy gear that, you know, you want to check out, I know you do a lot of reviews of gear. How do you temper that so that it financially makes sense for you? I only buy stuff if I know I'm going to use it. And if it's something where I'll get it into test and if I like it, then it stays. Uh, if I, you know, if it goes and then I think I really miss it, then I'm going to, I would have to buy it because I know I'm, you know, it's, it needs to be part of my setup, but it's more a question of, you know, I'm really thinking, am I going to use this a lot? And if I am going to use it a lot, then I'll keep it. That's pretty much the way it works. So, you know, since setting up my own room, I've been getting more into, you know, really finer details, uh, speaker stands and, you know, sort of uh, sound isolation and things like that. So it's kind of, um, yeah, ridiculous to those extremes. Do you find that since you've been at it for so long now that, you know, you've kind of gone through all the, the surface level stuff? I don't want to say surface level, but you know what I mean? It's like you've dealt with all the the gear things now, and it seems like now you're even getting into the minutia of things. Like you're getting, like you said, speaker stands, and you're getting into like you know shortness of cables and these fine fine details. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine tuning. I'm just trying to get the I'm trying to get the perfect sounding room. Now, there's no such thing. There's totally no such thing, and my room isn't big enough to be the perfect sounding room everyone works in small rooms now so it's kind of a lot of the technology and a lot of the things that are going on are based around that concept that everybody is working from smaller rooms they're not working from big studios so there's loads of technology coming out and loads of bits and bobs that help you get a better sound in your room and 
you know, and it's just getting those in fine and going, right, is that sound, does that sound better than when I didn't have them in? Yes, it is. No, it isn't, you know, and then it it's either stays or goes, but it's definitely a question of A, B and stuff. And it's been great doing the videos and, you know, doing that for people so they can hear what I'm doing as well. And then they can make a decision and go, I wouldn't mind checking that out. You know, it's, it sounds good there. So why not do it? And I think everyone's, you know, a lot of people that, you know, I know who are producers, a lot of them work from home studios now or small, certainly smaller studios that don't have big mixing consoles. And what they need to do is just make sure that that space sounds the best it possibly can. So that whether that's having speaker isolation, sonar works, um, re reflective panels, whatever that needs to be to get the room sounding better, then they should be doing that really. Constant experimentation and, and listening, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, but that's how, you know, I want to be able to hear exactly what I'm doing to the best I can. So, so someone sends me something, I can hear everything that they're hearing so that I can then, you know, because I don't want to be EQing for the fact that, my, that I can't hear what I'm doing. If I'm adding EQ for a reason that I shouldn't be because it's just that the replay system in my room isn't up to scratch, then I'm going to add something that doesn't need to be added. So I need to know that my, uh, you know, that I've done everything I possibly can to make the speakers play back to me as, as flat or as interesting as possible. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you, is there any bits of advice you would offer to not only beginning mastering engineers, but mastering engineers who are kind of, you know, midway through their career? Um, I think these, going back to networking again, I think that's the key really to keeping yourself going. I also, you know, think that it's a massively changing industry. So it's just keeping on top of everything that's going on all the time, forever tweaking your stuff to make sure that you're getting the best sound you can, trying new things all the time. It's difficult because you're working all the time on stuff every day and to find that time to test stuff. As I know from doing the videos, it's really hard work. Um, and it's, but it's that, it's that hard work that pays off when you get a decent tracking and you know you can pull it out the bag and then you're going to get a good sound. And I, I'm a big believer in um, having assistance as well. And, um, and since having my assistant here with me, it's been able to, I've been able to kind of put more work in because I can film the videos, he can go off, edit them and do all that. So I've been able to do even more. And I think that's, that's a real key for people that if they haven't got an assistant, where, whoever they are, wherever they are, they should get an assistant because all these big studios have gone and there's nowhere for these guys to learn anymore. They're going and paying th thousands and thousands of pounds to, to colleges where there's no jobs at the end and they're learning about mixing on a desk that doesn't exist. So, you know, people should be getting jobs in, you know, giving people work experience and internships or whatever in the studios just to help them out but it's also helping the person out that's coming in and 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 otherwise all these things all these kind of things that we know and all the techniques and everything will slowly die because there's nobody teaching these these young kids that kind of stuff and i think you know that that helps you as an engineer to get better because they're taking things away from you especially if you're you know, a lot of people are working on their own or they're, they're trying to run a whole kind of business doing the marketing, the accounts, everything. You need to get rid of all of that if you're going to become good at mastering because you need the time to be able to listen and work out what's going on. Streaky, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for, thank for you. taking the time to come on the show.
No worries. Thanks. I hope it didn't bore you too much with my life story. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Well, you take care and uh, thanks again for, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. All right. Talk to you later. Cheers. Bye. Streaky here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. If you haven't stopped by workingclassaudio.com, please do so. There is well over 200 episodes of shows to choose from with different audio professionals for you to listen to. Uh, there's also uh, some links there for our sponsors who help make the show possible. Universal Audio, AEA Ribbon Mics, Audio Technica, Roswell Pro Audio, The License Lab, and Gearsluts.com. And, uh, of course, we can't go without thanking our friends, Mr. Cliff Truesdell for the music and Mr. Chuck Smith for the voice. Spread the word, friends, on social media. Tell all your audio friends and non-audio friends, for that matter, about the show. And until then, we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>